Hi, and welcome back to the Abraham Watkins Podcast, Episode 3. My name is Jeffrey Atkinson. I'm the Social Media Marketing Manager. I'm here with Mo Aziz, who's been a partner at Abraham Watkins since 2012. Mo, you came originally from Pakistan, moved here from Pakistan, and then decided to be an attorney. What made you move from Pakistan to the United States, and what made you become an attorney? So, uh, Jeffrey, I, I moved here uh, to go to law school, uh, and my mission was to become a lawyer, practice in, uh, in the U.S. I was really intrigued by the legal system in, um, in, in the United States. I took my LSAT in Pakistan uh, and applied to a number of law schools and got into several all, all over the country. And um, the University of Houston uh, Law Center was one that seemed the, the best fit for me uh, and also, frankly, affordable to a certain extent. And so that's why I uh, decided to come here in 2001 to go to law school. Uh, and um, interestingly, you know, my uh, interest in litigation was really sparked when as a, a teenager, I, I used to read uh, John Grisham books mm -hmm. and was very uh, engaged by that. I mean, I, I, I didn't see any other um, jurisdiction where you could practice this type of law. Mm -hmm. And what made you focus on personal injury? So I had a finance background. Um, uh, I used to work at PricewaterhouseCoopers and I always thought I would do something finance related in law, was initially my thought. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you know, I would be uh, some type of finance related practice. But my first job in a law school after my first year, I clerked for a firm, a, a small solo practice mm -hmm. uh, that did personal injury work. They did some other litigation work as well. It was, it was all litigation and um, some was personal injury. And uh, from the day I started doing it, I just knew that's what I wanted, wanted to practice in. And how did you decide to come to Abraham Watkins? So, uh, you know, my, um, from what I remember, after graduating law school, taking the bar exam, uh, I wanted to be with one of the top-notch firms in the state. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, there were some firms that were in Houston. There were some that were outside of Houston. Um, honestly, I never thought I would find myself at, at get a job at Abraham Watkins. Uh, it, it happened that they had a need uh, after I'd been practicing for maybe I think a year and a half. Uh, there was an opening for a temporary position mm -hmm. here um, to work on one case. And so I was, re I really started as a temporary hire uh, at the firm. And how do you think you uh, were able to achieve becoming a partner at such a young age? So there was a lot of things that go into that, Jeffrey. And, and you know, one of them was that uh, I had good mentorship. Uh, you know, we were, there were goals that were set for us as associates that if you want to be a partner one day, you have to do these following things. Mm -hmm. And so that was spelled out for me. Um, also working on some of the cases that I worked on, I got to learn from some of the best lawyers in the country. Um, and so that was a great opportunity for me to work hard and kind of showcase just the hard work I can put in. Um, and we had a very set expectation level that if you want to be a partner, you need to not only work your cases, you get results, you need to be board certified, you need to be uh, a member of a BOTA, you need to um, 
try cases and you mm -hmm. have to try cases to get board certified right. uh, as first chair and uh, and you need to generate business mm -hmm. right i mean those this it's just the total package that you need and so that was set out very clearly for me um and, and you know that's just to me there was uh that that was something i, I just needed to achieve okay uh and so i set forth on um, achieving each of those goals as fast as I could, trying cases, um, getting board certified, at the same time working hard to get uh, to build a referral network. And to be clear, you are board, board certified in personal injury. Yes, sir. And what takes what does it take to be board certified in personal injury? You have try a num You have to try a certain number of cases uh, to as first chair. Mm -hmm. um, and How many chairs are there? Uh, well, the first chair is the, is the lead lawyer for okay. the uh, for the case, and then you know you can have second chair, and after that it doesn't really it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the key is that you know as as the first chair, you you typically will pick the jury, mm -hmm. you will um, uh, do the opening, you'll do the closing, you'll do a lot a lot of the major uh, events that happen in a trial. So. Um, there's a set number of trials you have to do as first chair. Uh, you have to then take an exam, mm -hmm. which is typically in, uh, held in Austin, on uh, your area of specialty, which obviously our area of specialty is personal injury trial law. Mm -hmm. So that's what um, our exam was focused on, is the cases, that the type of cases that we work. Okay. And I think uh, we all know that you kind of work on a lot of high profile cases. What was the first um, big case you, you can remember working on? I think the case that kind of set the stage for my career um, was the West Fertilizer ex Explosion case, a very tragic case. Uh, there was a whole community uh, devastated in the city of West, which is uh, north of Waco, Texas. Uh, this explosion was back in April of 2013. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it started off as a case where nobody thought there would be a recovery uh, because the storage facility where the ammonium nitrate was being stored at the time of this fire and then explosion uh, had only a million dollars in insurance. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, uh, despite the, uh, the massive death toll, the massive damage to the community, a lot of people uh, you know, just thought there was no case there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I had an opportunity. I got a case referred to me uh, from a lawyer who works in Waco. Uh, and due to the fact that there was a vacuum, uh, you know, because people thought there was no case, mm -hmm. we were able to uh, find an angle uh, and pursue it against the manufacturers of the ammonium nitrate. Mm -hmm. And then given the complexity of that case, we got a lot of cases referred over. Uh, we had a big contingent of cases, wrongful death cases, and serious personal injury cases. Um, and, and, and that case went on for several years and was extremely contested mm -hmm. because there had never been a successful civil lawsuit against the uh, against a manufacturer of ammonium nitrate in the history of the United States. I mean, there had been incidents involving ammonium nitrate, there had been industrial incidents, there had been um, criminal 
incidents like Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. uh, the first World Trade Center bombing. Mm-hmm. Those those events involved ammonium nitrate, but those um, those cases did not succeed. Okay. Uh, and you know, in that case, we took hundreds of depositions. Uh, very science-based case. It mm-hmm. was you know based on. Um, a lot of expert work, a lot of document review, hundreds of depositions, and we were able to get our clients' cases settled first um, after the first couple of trial settings, and then we settled our, um, our our whole group of cases. Okay, and what kind of personal injury case was that? Was it a was it a premises liability case? Was it a product liability case? Wrongful death. So they were wrongful deaths uh, in that case, but f- the true nature of the case was a product liability case. Okay. Uh, and and because our allegations were, since the product was at a customer's facility, mm-hmm. um, and out of the hands of the manufacturer, right? They had shipped the product, and so we had uh, marketing defect theories, uh, which means that the Dangers associated with the product had not been properly communicated to the end user. Um, we had design defect theories, which meant that you know they could have added certain materials to the ammonium nitrate to make it uh, inert in case of a fire. Uh, and surprisingly, what I learned in that case was that there's hundreds and hundreds of communities all all over the state where ammonium nitrate is stored in the middle of the community, you know, these farming communities, uh, where you have, what, tons and tons of material that really is an explosive material, Mm -hmm. right? It was used for uh, explosive purposes in certain situations. That material is in the middle of neighborhoods. The the West event was, the storage facility was very close to the high school, mm-hmm. the middle school, mm-hmm. uh, a nursing home, uh, an apartment complex. So the first client that I represented was actually in the apartment complex. Next to the facility. Next to the facility, got, it got destroyed. He got uh, severely injured, uh, had severe injuries, and ended up taking his own life uh, because of the uh, extent of his injuries. Left PTSD. PTSD and yes, sir, and, and major scarring. And major scarring. Uh, we also represented uh, others in that apartment complex. Uh, but from my perspective, these um, different the schools, the apartment complex, the nursing home, the storage facility should have never been within. I was going to ask you that. Why do they put these explosive materials so close to all these residential? buildings and, and people? That's a great question. Uh, because the, defend, the the parties that to the case, the defendants were, these are international companies. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, and so one of them actually does business in Europe. And what we discovered in the discovery process uh, of taking depositions, uh, of taking depositions of their executives, some of the whom had worked in Europe as well, that they've had a different set of rules. So what they did here, they could not have done in the UK, because mm-hmm. there over there they were not allowed to build a storage facility, or actually sell to a storage facility that has wood storage, uh, does not have sprinkler systems, mm-hmm. and is so close to these 
buildings uh, that have people in them, mm-hmm. um, that that was something that would not be allowed in the in per their own policies mm-hmm. in Europe. Right. And, and frankly, I think that's what got the case settled. I mean, if 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 the jury was to hear that they have two sets of rules, right? Uh, I don't think that would have gone well with the with the jury here, and. Um, you know, even down to the the type of storage. You know, the, over over there, you need to have a concrete bunker or some type of concrete walls that mm-hmm. you store these uh, ma- this material in. You need to have minimum distances from other buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of that was being followed uh, or implemented in Texas. Wow. So you mentioned product liability on this case. Um, a couple other ones I think you have are. 3M, Takata Airbag, can you kind of explain what happened to Takata? Because I think uh, West uh, Fertilizer and Takata have a couple similarities. Yes, so um, some, sometime after or during the West litigation, um, after there was an ongoing issue. Uh, there were uh, fatalities happening from exploding airbags. Mm-hmm. And that had been actually going on for several, several years. And uh, we got retained uh, on a case where, uh, unfortunately, a young uh, woman in, in the Fort Bend area had been in a, in a minor accident, mm-hmm. um, very minor, and her airbag inflator ruptured uh, when the airbag deployed and sent a piece of shrapnel into her neck. And she bled out and died at the scene. Wow. There was a nurse who tried to save her, but and there, just, there was too much damage. Uh, and so when I started looking into that case, uh, one of the first things that jumped out to, to me was that the material that was being used to inflate the airbag, mm-hmm. to create the energy that would inflate the airbag was ammonium nitrate. Which same is the same thing that blew up at the West Fertilizer. Uh, the same material uh, that was that exploded at West Fertilizer uh, and basically destroyed the town. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot more quantity in West, but mm-hmm. um, the same material was at some point, Takara had made the decision that they were gonna start using uh, ammonium nitrate as the source of energy in the airbag, uh, that when it gets the signal from an impact, uh, the electronic charge would uh, is supposed to energize the propellant, mm-hmm. and that fills your airbag, right? right? And it comes out in your in your uh, steering wheel, right? right. Um, interestingly, uh, in the West case, um, there was actually some documentation where Takara had approached them <laughs> and to manufacture. Uh, the manufacturers of the ammonium nitrate that was involved in West had been approached by Takara mm-hmm. uh, to manufacture ammonium nitrate for them, and they refused. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they thought that this would this is not a proper application for this material. Right, and and so which they makes to- sense. which makes <laughs> sense, right? Uh, and they told Takara even before they started this whole manufacturing process, they told them in a memo that this is not a proper application. Um, which it's not, because if you think about it, uh, ammonium nitrate has an equivalency with TNT. It's mm-hmm. an explosive material. Mm-hmm. It's not as powerful as TNT, but I think it's roughly around 0. 0.4 uh, 
uh, is the TNT equivalency. So if you have, if you take one pound of TNT mm -hmm. um, and, and, and it's, it detonates, mm -hmm. you could roughly take two pounds of ammonium nitrate and it would have the same effect. Wow. Okay. So what they've done is they've taken uh, an explosive material and placed it in uh, your steering wheel. Mm -hmm. And then they have encased it in metal, right? Uh, which is kind of the same concept that you have when you make a grenade, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, uh, your fragmentation grenade is something that breaks apart. Mm -hmm. uh, when you have uh, explosive inside of it, right? The pieces of the grenade are, are what cause damage. Right. Uh, and so an almost identical scenario here where you have uh, ammonium nitrate. It's fitted with a charge. Mm -hmm. uh, the charge is linked to sensors in your in the front, in the hood of your car. Mm -hmm. And the concept was that the uh, ammonium nitrate would let off energy and that energy is going to ex expand your airbag, right? But over time, and this is something that's been known for decades, mm -hmm. that over time, uh, ammonium nitrate will go through what's called a, f a phase transition. What that means is that as temperature goes over a certain amount, uh, it, it, it has chemical, the chemical properties change. And when temperature comes below a certain number, the chemical properties change. Mm -hmm. And once you keep going in these phase transitions, especially in the south because of the higher temperatures right. in the summer, uh, the material is going to start breaking down uh, and once it breaks down it it turns from something that would give energy to something that would detonate um, and those detonations were what started causing the inflators the metal uh, inflators to rupture mm -hmm. and then the the ruptured parts would act as projectiles within the occupant space Okay, mm -hmm. and and so that had been going on for many years, uh, and and lawyers around the country had those cases. Uh, once they start figuring out, you know, what the unusual uh, nature of the the event was, mm -hmm. but Takata had taken the position uh, from the beginning with the federal authorities that they did not know what was happening. They would they called them these field failures mm -hmm. and uh, unknown reason okay and, and so we um, got into the lawsuit with the uh, Takata and the uh, car manufacturer and put out a very lengthy statement where based on the knowledge that I had gained in the West fertilizer case about ammonium nitrate mm -hmm. uh, we were able to apply that to what had happened with the airbags mm -hmm. Uh, and we just laid it out. We said, hey, here's, this is why this is happening. There's no mystery here. You have used an explosive material. This explosive material is in millions of cars, mm -hmm. not just limited models, right? Because, yeah. I mean, initially the recall started with just one year model or one make, but it's the same problem that's in all of these vehicles. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so. Different makes, different models. Porsche, BMW, Mercedes, Honda, Toyota, Mercedes. Everybody in, in some at some point in time, if they bought uh, 
airbag systems from Takara mm-hmm. have those in the cars. They have ammonium nitrate. Right. And, and Takara was told by the people in West Fertilizer, don't use this. The manufacturers of the ammonium nitrate, right. uh, you know, don't had told this. them, told them way in advance. Their own testing showed that uh, they were failures, but they hit those tests. Mm-hmm. The, there was some testing done in Japan, which never came to light until mm-hmm. a lot later when there was a whistleblower. But we um, approached that case from that angle, and uh, you know, they almost instantly there was widespread outcry about mm-hmm. what had happened mm-hmm. or, or what was happening because. At some point, everybody, once you read that our press release, listened to the interview, um, read up on the material, everybody was concerned that there's like a hand grenade in their car, right? Right, and and people started calling their dealerships, uh, calling their you know their their local politicians, asking what what's going, what what's the fix here because. Within a few weeks of our press release um, and lawsuit being filed, Takara expanded the scope of their recall mm-hmm. and then kept on expanding it until they then filed for bankruptcy. Right. Um, but and that case got resolved. Unfortunately, you know our uh, client was deceased, mm-hmm. but that case settled within a few months. Um, and but from there on. You know, I think the, that kind of set this ball rolling on people questioning Takara's uh, knowledge, mm-hmm. which ultimately led to them trying to replace some of them, but mm-hmm. they just don't have enough parts to replace them, right? And so they just filed for bankruptcy. So now they're gone. They're gone, but the inflators are still there. And in, in multiple cars? And, and several cars. Okay. And Millions. Then, and then can, can, is there any recourse for those people? Can they go after who used to own or who, the, since, since Takata was a subsidiary, who, uh, who owned Takata? So, uh, you, you know, the, Takata used the uh, bankruptcy process to absolve themselves literally mm-hmm. of this problem. Um, the only recourse that people would have is against the manufacturers of the vehicles. Okay. The people who, you know, like the, the Toyotas, the Hondas of the world, mm-hmm. but that's still limited. So the way that bankruptcy and it's it's very complicated uh, as to how it all came about. But there's limited recourse okay. for people, not like what it used to be. But these these airbags are no longer allowed to be put in vehicles, right? Moving forward. Moving forward. Okay. And they just did this because of profits. It was a cheap material. It mm-hmm. was a cheap propellant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's made. It's mass produced. Okay. It used to be used for agricultural purposes, so it's mass produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's it's. Uh, is it still around? Do they still use it for agricultural purposes, or is it kind of very limited? Okay. Very limited. So there's uh, after the West event, there was a lot of spotlight on the industry, mm-hmm. uh, and OSHA made some new regulations. Mm-hmm onto fire rating of buildings. That means how long can a building where you're going to sustain ammonium nitrate, how long can that withstand a fire? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of uh, light was shed on uh, letting first responders know what the dangers are of this product. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna to respond to a fire in an ammonium nitrate facility, how to proceed with that? Um, because nobody really understood the dangers um, 
generally, the mm -hmm. public did not understand the dangers until the West event happened. Gotcha. Nobody thought um, that ammonium nitrate could explode under those conditions, mm -hmm. other than there had been explosions under those types of conditions, mm -hmm. and uh, the manufacturers were aware of that. Gotcha. So I think um, another product liability case we have in-house here, um, a lot of people don't know, 3M. Um, a lot of veterans uh, have been injured, lost hearing through 3M earplugs. A lot of people think of 3M as people that make vehicle wraps, that make stickers, that make tabs on their, on their binders, but 3M actually makes uh, earplugs for the for veterans. Can you kind of ex explain that case that's going on? Sure. So um, that case is a product liability case. It's a, what's considered a mass tort, which means there's hundreds of thousands of cases. Mm -hmm. 3M has become into the biggest mass tort in the history of the United States, numbers-wise. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest or one of the biggest. Um, basically, it goes down to uh, there's a company called Aero Technologies that that was awarded a contract to make uh, hearing protection mm -hmm. for the military, uh, for the troops. And it was supposed to be the type of um, hearing protection that, they, that, that could be used uh, for m multiple purposes. Um, and it, it was improperly designed from the get-go. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of similar to our, our Takata situation, mm -hmm. you know, in a way that from the get-go they knew that this is a bad idea. Mm. Aero did. They did anyway. Aero Technologies knew, but failed to act. Uh, you know, they got a big government contract, sold millions of these mm -hmm. units. Aero got purchased by 3M at some point, mm -hmm. along with that, the, you know, all the liabilities that went with that. Mm -hmm. And so the 3M case has been ongoing. We are honored to represent thousands of veterans in that uh, litigation. There's been 17 trials so far. Um, the majority of the trials, the jury verdicts have come in favor of the, uh, the plaintiffs, the mm -hmm. veterans. Um, 3M has tried to put Aero into bankruptcy, mm -hmm. again trying to use the, uh, the bankruptcy law for a purpose that we believe that the bankruptcy law was never meant to be used for, right? right? To absolve yourself of liability. I mean, that's just not what um, the intent of the bankruptcy process is, but that's what, uh, you know, some lawyers have come up with an idea that you could divest yourself of life. You can create an entity mm -hmm. and put it in bankruptcy and give them all your liabilities. It's the very basic way to break it down. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of controversy about that. Um, so but basically, basically make up a whole bunch of profit up front, doing something you know is wrong, and then if something happens, hey, we'll just file for bankruptcy afterwards. Basically, basically. Uh, and you know, there's, um, there's more steps that go into it, but uh, you know, we uh, have been able to stall their efforts so far. Uh, and, and so the case is still on track. And okay. uh, hopefully, you know, at some point, we can get a resolution for uh, the thousands of clients that we represent. Okay. Earlier, uh, right there, you just talked about mass tort. Um, can you kind of quickly uh, summarize the difference? Because a lot of people think you have a mass amount of people filing a lawsuit, that's class action. What's the difference between class action, mass tort? I think I've heard before from some of our chemical plant explosions, those are MDLs. Can you kind of quickly kind of say sure. the difference of those? Sure, so really there's three, um, the way I would classify it, um, 
there's a mass tort, mm-hmm. which is where there's thousands of people that have been affected by a product, usually a drug or uh, a medical device, or in 3M's case, uh, hearing protection. Okay, mm-hmm. that's mass tort. Okay, but they've been injured at different times. Okay, so everybody's not, not used a single event. Not a single event. Okay. They've been injured at different times uh, when they used the product or they took the drug. Um, the a class action is something totally separate, right? Which is uh, not suitable for those type of cases, in my opinion, uh, because you have to have individualized damages. Okay, what we um, really specialize the most in uh, is what I call a mass casualty event. Okay, where you have an event um, where there is numerous casualties, fatalities, injuries as a result of one event. Okay. Such as West Fertilizer, such as the MGM October 1 shooting. Mm-hmm. You know, we just had the uh, anniversary here recently. Um, so that's one event. And both mass starts and mass casualty events usually get put in what's called an MDL, multi-district litigation. Mm-hmm. You could have a state court MDL, you could have a federal court MDL. 3M is a federal court MDL. Um, some of these other cases um, that we're involved in where there's been a massive explosion or a fire and there's you know multiple fatalities or injuries are in state court MDLs. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, over the last five years, I've been involved in many um, MDLs. I've, I've, I've actually uh, been either lead counsel or liaison counsel or co-liaison counsel on several MDLs where we prepare each, each case individually uh, as if it was going to be tried either by itself or with one or two other cases. Um, but they're in this MDL setting where there is um, organized discovery and depositions uh, and there's rules that relate to to, pr- to promote the the efficiency of the process mm-hmm. uh, to, okay. you know because there's 10 15 100 different law firms involved right so the, the court's not going to allow the the each of the firms to take 100 depositions of the same person right so they have to be organized uh, and the plaintiffs need to organize and typically ideally um, you know, utilize their resources and time and expense money in a way that benefits the group. And so I found myself to be heavily involved in MDLs and um, I think we have a really good track record mm-hmm. in MDLs. Part of that being, uh, you know, we work well with other firms. Uh, we uh, try to uh, treat everybody fairly. Uh, and. Uh, just take the lead in working up the case, mm-hmm. right? And and so um, very different from a class action. Okay, so so Vegas was an MDL since it was a, a one night mass casualty shooting event. Now um, we did we obviously didn't go after the actual shooter. We went we went after the 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 property that allowed the shooter on premises, correct? So the shooter was part of the case. Okay. Uh, I mean, we, yeah, and, you know, the shooter was had uh, died in the in the event, but given the the enormity of the loss um, and the circumstances the circumstances under which the shooting happened, mm-hmm. you know, there was a strong belief and evidence that uh, MGM had liability. 
um, uh, for the for the event, mm -hmm. and so that's that was the avenue that was focused on. Okay, and then throughout that that lawsuit, um, were we trying to prove that they 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 should have had better cameras, they should have had more security, they should have been more observant. Kind of what were we were we going after MGM for on that? So there were multiple areas uh, in that uh, in that case that we were focusing on. Mm -hmm. okay, one was um, how that event itself played out and the timelines of things and how uh, the shooter was able to get that much am ammunition, that those many guns with the help of, you know, the uh, staff really up into his room, mm -hmm. oh, okay. uh, you, you know, using a staff elevator. Um, but then there was a big picture uh, issues as well as to security at these facilities, mm -hmm. right? There was uh, this ongoing threat of terrorism. Um, there was some evidence that they had been notified that there needs to be uh, more security. Uh, you know, the basic things like, you know, bomb sniffing dogs or mm -hmm. canines. Mm -hmm. You know, you should have canine units, something like that. Would have easily prevented this event. Mm. So it, that was really a security case. Okay. So that was MDL and that had thousands of people involved. 4,000. 4, okay. And then we also have some other MDL uh, cases that we kind of specialize here in because we're in Houston, all these chemical plants. Um, we have a lot of safety issues going on. I know right now we're currently in a lawsuit with uh, a sicko, with, um, we, we finished Karari, we're working on Westlake in, in Louisiana, but their, their corporate headquarters is in Houston. Can you kind of touch on those cases as well? Yes, sir. So, you know, obviously we're, um, being in Houston, we're close to a lot of chemical plants, refineries, and um, what I've learned over the course of years working on these cases is that over decades of experience, there's been rules set that need to be followed to protect uh, refinery workers. Mm -hmm. right? There's permits, there's air atmospheric checks, what we call LEL checks. Um, there's line break procedures. There are, uh, you know, H2S procedures, the confined space entry procedures. There's a lot of procedures. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is when people stop following those procedures. Mm -hmm. And usually, and, and, and a number of these cases that you mentioned, Jeffrey, we've, the problem happens during or towards the end of what's called a turnaround. Mm -hmm. Units shut down, repair works being done, um, and most of these incidents happen during a shutdown because the plant owner mm -hmm. wants to get back into production. Right. Because if the shooter shut down, you're not making money. Right. No production going on. Mm -hmm. and, and so most of these incidents happen either during or really towards the end of the shutdown mm -hmm. when they're trying to do multiple jobs at the same time. Okay. So to give you an example of one of the cases we have going on in, in um, uh, Westlake Chemical Litigation, there's a thing called simultaneous operations, SIMOPS, you know, two different contractors working around each other uh, at the same time. Mm -hmm. That can cause, uh, that can create a lot of risk for people if there's not good communication. Mm -hmm. If one person is doing work that would create uh, potential of release of hazardous material, right. another person, you know, 15 feet from them is starting to weld. But they work for two different work for two different contractors. 
Uh, so if there's no, if the simultaneous operations procedure is not being followed, there's going to be problems, right? right? And, and and you know people are being rushed. I mean, it sounds kind of cliche that you know it's always rush, rush, rush. But in most of these cases, that's what we find out. I was going to say a lot of these cases that we've been talking about, everything comes down to profit a little bit or a lot of it. Uh, a lot of these decisions uh, or you know poor decisions are made because people are trying to rush things mm -hmm. and they're just trying to make things move. Uh, without going through all the safety steps, without doing all the LEL checks, without trying to figure out if there is an abnormal condition in the system, mm -hmm. what's the source of that condition? Okay, instead of saying, "Hey, just burn it off to the flare mm -hmm. and proceed as usual," right? Because during a turn turnaround, a, a system is shut down. Right. You know, it's supposed to be blocked, blinded. No material should come into the system. And if there's any indication that there's new material in the system, for example, in one of our cases, um, several injured uh, workers got burned. Uh, there was an abnormal condition, and instead of investigating the abnormal condition, the uh, plant owner decided to release any material to the flare. Mm -hmm. And the flare is what you see burning if, at night if you drive by Pasadena, you know, the right. fires are right. coming out of those pipes, that's the flare. So they burned it off and then told our guys, our clients, to proceed with their work. Well, the fundamental question that should have been addressed at that point is, why is there pressure in a system that's been closed for three days? Right. Right? Okay. That was never addressed. Basic common sense. Mm -hmm. It resulted in a fire and, and severe burns to our clients. Um, completely avoidable incident. Right. They've just been a little bit slower and been safe about it. Correct. Okay. So that's kind of, kind of what we kind of saw in... I think Karari was a was a big uh, emphasis on safety be, or lack of safety because there was a lot of alarms that went off. So there was a lot of issues with that case. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, it, initially what they were trying to say was this is operator human error. Okay. So uh, pressures were rising in the reactor, um, and the alarms were going off and you know one operator just missed it mm -hmm. and so that was the um, initial story mm -hmm. uh, well the story went a lot deeper than that uh, it went a lot deeper than that and all, it went back years and years and years uh, you know the, the system that they had there on that reactor was uh, the pressure relief system that they had mm -hmm. uh, in case there would be an abnormal buildup of pressure then instead of the entire reactor just exploding and killing hundreds of people, they're designed, which has happened in the past, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, people try to learn from their mistakes. Um, 50 years ago, 80 years ago, engineers started putting pressure relief systems on reactors. Right, okay. So pressure builds up, system's supposed to relieve. Okay. That's what happened here. But the pressure relief system was very outdated uh, and caused a consequence which they had been told about mm -hmm. this could happen. This could injure or kill people. Mm -hmm. uh, and certain uh, proposals were provided to them by third-party contractors on how to fix that, and they decided not to okay. uh, because it was going to cost them a certain amount of money. And, and so somebody in Japan made the decision that now we don't need to do this, uh, and and so. There was notice, years of notice, mm -hmm. um, that led to that incident. Profits again. <laughs> um, is that kind of what happened with our current case with Watson Grinding? Because I, 
I know a lot of people hear the name Watson, they might not know, but um, for anybody listening, Watson Grinding, we were all in Houston. Watson Grinding's way out by the Beltway. 4 a.m., you hear an explosion. The whole city heard it. Just woke you up out of your sleep. Um, is that kind of the same thing that happened with Watson Grinding? Just so Watson Grinding, it's a slightly different situation as in it's not a refinery, right? Mm -hmm. So Watson, the Watson facility is a um, thermal spray facility. It's an industrial facility, but they're not like a chemical plant. Okay. They don't have those type of systems and procedures. Um, and what we had there was, again, multiple uh, parties over the years, multiple missteps. Okay. And we all remember what happened that morning, mm -hmm. you know, and we have another neighborhood that was destroyed. Um, that case is still ongoing. Mm -hmm. um, we've, we've taken a lot of dep depositions, hundreds of depositions. Mm -hmm. um, and there is similarities for sure between what happened there and, and some of these other incidents. Yeah, I know we can't talk much about it, but just wanted to kind of hit on that a little bit. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I know you were recently in trial a couple months ago for Dram Shop. A lot of people don't. Dram Shop is where you, uh, somebody is, is out at a, at a bar or restaurant, they're drinking, they go out, um, hit somebody, DW, most people get a DWI is what most people think of. Okay, DWI, that's it. No, actually the uh, establishment where the person was drinking can be held liable for their actions over serving over serving drinks to that person they go out and, and, and injure or, or kill someone um, what kind of happened in in that case that uh, that you tried because I, I found it pretty interesting because it was multiple establishments that were over serving this person this person so um, we tried this case earlier this year uh, the case dissolved during the course of trial but uh, you know, one of the interesting things that um, I talked to the jury afterwards, mm -hmm. uh, and overriding this concern that some of the people had, there was one uh, lady who was uh, a nurse, mm -hmm. and you know what she shared with us after the case was over mm -hmm. was that the sheer amount of DWI-related injuries uh, or, or intoxicated driving injuries, deaths that she sees every night in the ER is just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And and it just gets worse when we get closer to the holiday season. Uh, but it s sounded like, or sounds like still, every time you put on the news, there's some wrong way driver, somebody's kills uh, you know, a family, innocent people getting killed. Our case involved an innocent uh, uh, Uber Lyft driver um, and uh, who was hit by a drunk mm -hmm. driver. Uh, and there was, was also there was also a fatality in that case. Our client was driving the Uber. He was working. He was working. He was working for Uber. We're working for Uber. He was bringing somebody from the airport, uh, just going down the road, minding his business, for, mm -hmm. you know, fo following the laws of the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. And along comes a driver at a very high rate of speed, mm -hmm. and just plowed into them. And, and um, you know, very graphic body cam footage we had from the scene, but. Basically, the driver who hit them mm -hmm. had been uh, drinking at two establishments that night mm -hmm. and was, uh, I believe at that time, he was just turned 21. Mm -hmm. um, and what we were able to accomplish in that case was that we got the footage, mm -hmm. surveillance footage from bar number one, mm -hmm. where he'd had a 
very excessive amount of alcohol served to him. Um, almost 14. There was some controversy. I think whether there was like 13 or 15 drinks. Okay, well, <laughs> for one person. Yeah, uh, that was a point of contention. But uh, we and then had left that uh, establishment, gone to another establishment. Right. Interestingly, they, you know, somebody in the case tracked his movements through the phone or the DA's office did. And even leaving the first establishment, going to the second one, he was doing like 90, 95, 100 miles an hour on I-45. Mm -hmm. So okay. already heavily intoxicated from being overserved at the first establishment, walked into another establishment. Goes to another establishment. There, there was proceeded to be served with um, something that was equivalent to five shots in uh, a course of like the span of 33 minutes or something like that. Okay. Leaves there and then uh, kind of drives around in circles towards GPS show uh, and stops at, you know, in a church parking lot at some point, then leaves at a high rate of speed and causes the crash, right? Wow. So under the laws of the state of Texas, you know, if you're going to sell, you need a license to sell liquor commercially. Correct. Right? And with that license, you get um, the right to sell liquor, mm -hmm. but with that right, you get some obligations too. Right. You have responsibility. Right? Responsibility. It's just like you know, being a firearms owner. You can, you can go buy a gun, but there's also a responsibility. Right. Um, similarly, if, you're gonna, if you are going to profit from selling alcohol to the public, mm -hmm. then there's a set of rules you have to follow. Right? And if those rules are broken, then you can have civil liability right. uh, for any injuries or death that is caused as a result of over-service. Mm -hmm. and, and the law in that area is, is very complicated. It's frankly very favorable to uh, the industry, mm -hmm. the entertainment industry, uh, the, you know, the alcohol service industry. But if you have the right circumstance, you can hold them liable. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, in that case, we did a lot of what I think is kind of innovative work is we not only looked at the service to the person who had caused the incident, we looked at the service everybody that night who right. was at the restaurant. We have camera footage of the of the server. So we got we got the camera footage of the entire restaurant mm -hmm. slash bar. We got the um, receipts for everybody. Uh, and our investigator uh, basically sat there and watched hours and hours and hours of footage and tapped, added up who had been served what at every table. Wow. And, and, and there were multiple tables that had over service, mm -hmm. multiple tables. And um, that was a problem for them. So this is just baked into their culture that they over serve all their patrons. Right. It wasn't just one rogue server right not just one guy not following the rules mm -hmm. multiple tables right the manager not doing his job right okay um manager young inexperienced um and and again that was you know a big point of contention whether that's admissible relevant all of those things um the you know so i think we do know that as a result of that incident uh, there were some positive changes made at by that uh, by that chain and um, as to how much could be served and when the system itself the software was installed mm -hmm. that you just couldn't exceed a certain limit and so I think big picture that overall promotes safety but you know over service of alcohol related 
debts is is a real problem in Houston. All right. I think I saw a stat that said Houston is the number one market right now for for uh, DWI cases or traffic uh, deadly traffic accidents in uh, in Texas. So. Uh, definitely need to be careful about that. Last thing I want to kind of touch on, it's a kind of, it's a very sad story. Um, Emery Sayer, um, this is a new case we, we, we just received. Um, can you kind of go, I know it's, and it's ongoing, so I know we can't talk a lot about it, but can you kind of share a little bit about what happened to the, in this, uh, in this event? Sure. So, uh, it is a very tragic case. Uh, you know, we represent the parents of a minor, a child, a, a girl who, uh, was dropped off from her school bus and then got um, tragically run over by the school bus the, and killed. Um, you know, the big picture issue for me in, the, in that case, because I got the case, you know, I looked at it very closely to see what is it that we want to accomplish and what, what, what does uh, the family want to accomplish here. Mm-hmm. And school bus safety is, is a huge issue. Uh, you know, unfortunately, kids have been getting run over by school buses for as long as school buses have been around, mm-hmm. right? So, over years, there have been changes made. There was a huge fight about seat belts, like a decade ago. Mm-hmm. The industry didn't. The, the industry did not want to put seat belts for these for the kids, mm-hmm. right? Huge fight about that. Again, in other countries, they do, um, but. That was uh, one point of contention. The issue in this case is um, blind spots. Okay. You know, so you've got a bus driver, he or she is sitting up there. You know that kids are going to behave unpredictably because they're kids. Right. Right? And um, you know, you being the industry, the bus manufacturers know that they're blind spots. Mm-hmm. Right? So just like you have a camera in your car when you reverse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if somebody gets close to the car, all sorts of beeps and buzzers go off. Right. Um, there should be the same safety features in a school bus. Because who else would you want to protect more than these kids? Right, exactly. Right? Uh, and some school buses do have. Yeah. Some school districts mandatory have uh, built that into their, their purchase of school buses. They'll have cameras, blind spots. Yes, so, you know, there's not a national regulation, like it's not uniform. Right. So different okay. school districts will do different things. Okay. Um, some will have these features, some don't, but from my perspective, why not just have these features exactly. as a standard feature, right? right? Your, your car has these features as a standard feature, um, mine does, why wouldn't we just have that? Exactly. Why, why would it even be something that's left up to debate and, you know, the budget of some school district depending on their size or whatever, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, it's just, it should be a standard feature. So uh, I, I feel that case is going to be um, very hotly contested. Mm-hmm. And um, again, our hope is to bring some awareness and change to the end.